so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. You said you don't like noses. No, no. I said I have a thing for noses. Oh, you like noses? No, I I like the right kind of noses. (laughs) (laughs) Even though they're all made in God's image. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week in his seventh grade Braves jacket is the bravest Braves fan of all. The bravest Braves fan of all. Right. Man, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Brent Leatherwood. I, w- I will humbly accept I'm sure you will. that honor as the bravest Brave fan of all. That's that is so man. That's good. Yes, that's is that a, going in your Twitter bio. That, that should go. That should go on my resume. Uh, that's yeah. Oh, that's man. the bravest brave fan. Thank you for that. That is an honor. And as a longtime fan of the Braves, I, I grew up. You know, my parents would would sit me in front of the TV in in uh, at my mamaw's and papaw's house and say. This is your team, son, and you shall always root for them. And they are, they are the team that is has always been the closest to my heart. Mm. And this week, they're world champions. Yep. And we're going to get to that in the yeah, culture we, section. You know, I was yeah. just going to say, I wish all of parenting was that easy. This is what you're going to do, daughter. And <laughs> you are going to do this with all of your heart for the rest of your life. It just this week, it's not been happening that That's way in right. our household. <laughs> well, I mean, specifically, my 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 dad said there was there's a former Braves player named Dale Murphy, and just like the classiest Atlanta Braves player on and off the field. And and dad was like, You're going to play the game the right way, and you're going to play it like Dale Murphy does. And like he's always been my my hero. Old Dale. Yeah, Dale Murphy. The only so, Braves player. And there were some lean years where he was the only thing to watch with the Braves. Like, yes. the Braves would lose well over 100 games, and Dale Murphy was about the only thing that kept you watching. Well, that's what makes his win even sweeter. It does. Oh, the gosh, only, does. Uh, I think the only Braves player I know is Chipper Jones. I mean, he's not one anymore. Was A-Rod a Braves player? No. Okay, well, I thought no. maybe he was. Played for the Mariners. <laughs> played for the... Yankees. Didn't he play for the Rangers for a while? I think he played for the Rangers. I'm <laughs> I don't know. A, we're going to look that up. Okay. All right. Yep. Okay. In, in show fact check. Yes, he did play for yes. the Rangers as well. But no, uh, A-Rod is not a member of the Braves. Well, Pantheon. obviously this week we're going to be talking about the Braves win, which will come in just a little bit. But let's talk about what else has been happening lately. And we're going to start with what the ERLC has been talking about this week. 
This Sunday is actually Orphan and Widows Sunday in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. So we wanted to be sure to highlight that population of often vulnerable individuals. And this first article I'm highlighting is by Amy Richards, and it's titled, How Widows and Widowers Can Thrive During the Holidays. Amy is a widow herself, and it was just sudden without warning after 20-something years of marriage. And she talks about how there's just no way to be prepared for that. And as we've entered this holiday season, which it's hard to believe we have because we're in November and Brent already probably has his Christmas tree up and is listening to all the Christmas music. (laughs) But we've entered this season, and with all its wonderfulness, there are people for whom it is really hard and really tough. And Amy points that out, and she gives great practical advice to the ones who have suffered loss and practical advice to churches, to the churches who serve them. And so, really, at the heart of the article is a desire that the Lord would open our eyes this season, direct them away from ourselves, because we can just get so inward-focused during the holidays, and um, direct them out toward others for the sake of serving them and remembering them in the midst of their hard holidays. This is uh, probably a particular population that really, in a lot of occasions, they're not front of mind for Christians. And this piece does a helpful job of reminding us that there are multiple places in Scripture where we are called to speak up on behalf of widows and orphans uh, and those who are rendered vulnerable in our society. And so that's, I mean, gosh, as, as we get closer and closer to the Christmas season, That should be front of mind because uh, we as believers, we were all once orphans. And thankfully, Jesus has created a way for us to be adopted into the kingdom. Well, and they should be front of mind for us, even though sadly they're not, because uh, you just think of all— the times that the Lord talks about them throughout Scripture, of all the things that God could have ordained be written, He mentions vulnerable populations like that because He is a God with a heart for the vulnerable. And we want to be a people like that too. So we're thankful that Amy has written this article. Next, we have an article by Katie Fruget, and it's titled, How Will Local Churches Respond in Light of SB8? A Call for the Church to Lovingly Prepare for a Post-Roe World. And as you re- might remember, SB8 is the Texas heart beat bill that outlaws abortion in Texas when there is a heartbeat detected, and that is as early as six weeks. So effectively, it's cut abortions, I, I believe, in half there in Texas. And so it presents the church with an incredible opportunity. And Katie, who works at the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission and actually was told herself to get a medically necessary abortion at 25 weeks, says that this is going to put the church to the test to show how the church will respond. And also, uh, the world is going to be looking to the church. Our country is going to be looking to see how the church does respond when abortion is effectively eliminated. She gives some ways that local churches can step up to the plate, and we've we've had other articles like this as well, and I'm thankful for all the voices that are speaking up about this. But she also gives advice and, and encouragement about the spirit in which we can step up to the plate as abortion is banned, because it matters what we do, but it also matters how we do it. Right, and this is something that has particularly been on the minds of uh, Christians, and and now, honestly, a, a lot of Americans, because of the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments on this case on Monday. And uh, there are a number of analysts out there who are actually thinking that the Supreme Court did not send signals of affirmation 
during the oral arguments. Now, look, it is very hard to read uh, the tea leaves uh, based on the questions that are asked of the various counsels uh, that are presenting in front of the Supreme Court, you know, and, and try and see from those, like, how the court is going to decide on a case. But there there are a number of people who are saying that two justices in, in particular, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, they were asking questions that were basically along the lines of, what Texas is doing here, can that be applied in instances other than abortion? And if so, does that make this uh, constitutionally suspect? That was kind of what some folks were were saying uh, about this. But we should be aware that oftentimes justices ask these questions to sharpen their own legal analysis uh, for their opinions. And, and many a times that can go in the opposite direction uh, of what their questions do. So know that. But what Katie does here is she starts talking about the needs that some of these pregnancy centers, these pregnancy resource centers uh, have in Texas, even before SB8, but in some cases they've now been exacerbated uh, because of SBA. And that's great, right? I mean, if all of a sudden you have more women out there saying, uh, I want to give up this child for adoption as opposed to terminating the pregnancy, that's, that's a great problem to have. Uh, but it is a problem for the church to, hey, let's step in, let's lean in and support uh, these vulnerable women and families and and, and these these uh, these couples out there that that may not have anticipated like oh wow we we now have brought a life into this world okay well let's wrap our arms around these people and and let's let's show them like hey choose life and this this child is going to have a great life and and let them see that while this may not be uh, what you anticipated this can be part of you yourself having a great life because children are a blessing. And so uh, this is a great piece and and certainly uh, something that has been on the minds of not just Texans, but Americans in general. Yeah. And finally, becoming a mom myself uh, just demonstrates to me how tough it is to bring a child into the world, to care for a child in all their different stages of life. And I cannot imagine doing that apart from community and family and resources. And so Katie just praises pregnancy resource centers, which they are, the people doing work there are the boots on the ground, she says, and encourages us as churches to partner with them to be able to resource moms and support them in various ways, especially moms who are in vulnerable positions and don't have access to what many of us do. So this article makes me eager for, and what you were mentioning, Brent, makes me eager for the Dobbs oral arguments coming in December. So again, uh, we will give you more information about that as they start. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. The final article that I want to highlight, once again, is about orphans and widows. And it's by Sarah Beth Fentress, and it's titled, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Leading a Nonprofit to Serve Orphans, Widows, and Vulnerable Communities. So Sarah Beth uh, runs 127 Worldwide. It's a ministry that cares for orphans, widows, and the vulnerable here and around the world. An incredible ministry. Sarah Beth shares her practical insights that really, truly will help any of us as we take steps of obedience that the Lord puts before us to obey James with pure and undefiled religion that cares for the vulnerable among us. And as we obey in various things that he calls us to, I just think that this is applicable across the board. And truly, it boils down to humility and trusting the Lord. 
She's got lots of great tidbits, but it does boil down to that, just humility and trusting the Lord and trusting that He will use us to serve others for His glory. This is a, a great piece that uh, Sarah Beth Fentress uh, provided for us, and I'm so thankful for 127 Worldwide and what they do on behalf of widows and orphans. And, you know, she talks in here from the perspective of uh, leading a, a nonprofit ministry, and that is a difficult thing to do, especially like, you know, being there as it's getting started. That is a, a challenging uh, task, to say the least. And uh, I am just thankful that they have a team there who has, you know, clearly felt the call of God to serve uh, vulnerable communities. And, um, you know, kind of in some of the related to the comments I, I said at the outset with the Amy Richards piece, uh, the, oftentimes this is a population that kind of get lost in the background of, you know, just as we're doing daily life as Christians in this fallen world. And I'm so thankful that there are ministries like 127 Worldwide who are out there being the hands and feet of Jesus and reminding Christians that we are called to serve this population. And um, and so, yeah, th- these are three great pieces this week and more. Yeah, there's a lot more where that came from, Brent. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what's been happening? Well, so, you know, there was a lot that happened this week, but we're going to start in the world of sports, because, uh, well, because we can, because it's our podcast, mm-hmm. and and because I'm a Braves fan. The bravest of Braves the fans. bravest Braves. <laughs> oh, gosh. Again, that's going to my resume. So, the reason we're starting there is because the World Series, the fall classic, it came to a fitting conclusion this week, because the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, are world champions, and... You can go to any sports site, ESPN, CBS Sports, all the other. You can find the rundown of the games. The, the Braves won four games to two over the Houston Astros, and they did it in an amazing fashion with a seven to nothing win, a shutout win in the uh, World Series clinching uh, game six. But I thought this was a great piece from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. They have a columnist there who's dedicated to the Braves, Mark Bradley. And he wrote this from mediocre to majestic, and just a couple sections of what he wrote. The Braves, who had become a running joke for their inability to get it right in the postseason, completed one of the most astonishing runs the grand old game has ever seen, winning game six by a landslide. Final score, seven to zero, and the World Series, four to two. They did it behind Max Fried, a pitcher who was one year, nine months, and 10 days old when the Atlanta-era Braves claimed their first championship back in 1995. Never has a team that didn't climb over 500 until August 5th made the postseason, let alone won at all. In route, the Braves beat the Brewers, who won 95 games, the Dodgers, who won 106, and now the Astros, who won 95. The Braves trailed only in the division series. They didn't face an elimination game, and they were 11-5 in the postseason which is a winning percentage of 68%, which over a 162-game season would meet 111 wins, which would be a stamp of greatness. So uh, for those who may not know, the Braves struggled for probably two-thirds of the season to get over the 500 mark, which is, you know, just 50-50 winning percentage. And then 
they made some trade deadline acquisitions and they just took off and they were world beaters. And it's just an amazing story. They're truly a team of destiny. And the fact that it happened in the same year where they lost legends like Hank Aaron and uh, pitcher Phil Necro, that they won the World Series this year is just, gosh, it's just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so uh, just a little extra kind of personal color on uh, the morning after they won, I was dropping the kids off at school. And I said, you know, y'all, you should appreciate this because the last time they did this was over 25 years ago. So I told them the last time they did this, daddy was 15. And what so did they say? that means the next time, if they were to do that again, the next time that they would win, daddy would be 65. Oh, man. <laughs> so hopefully it doesn't take them uh, that long to uh, win. I mean, I think next year would be a great year to defend their world championship. But uh, my daughter, who is is eight, she's like, wait, so I, that means I would be like 32. I said, yes, you would be 32 if they won it next. So uh, so yeah, th- this is this is something that's sweet, and uh, Braves fans have been a long-suffering bunch, and uh, man, I'm just excited about it. You can probably tell I'm, I'm very excited about this. And, and so you know excited, you should a, be. A, a large part of the SBC is probably excited. I, I'm sure there is a gigantic footprint that overlaps between Braves country and the Southern Baptist Convention. So really, we are just talking about this in order to serve our convention of churches. I am so sure. Well, yes, you are like a kid on Christmas with your Braves jacket. I just want to know what Anna Lee, when she found out she'd be in her 30s, was she like, wow, that's so old? Or when they heard you were going to be 65? Because, you know, sometimes those ages like, Yeah. I remember thinking when I, like when my mom was, you know, 40 or whatever, like, wow, she's so old. Yes. And now, guess what? Yeah, you're there. I'm not 40 yet. Thank oh, you very oh, much. oh, okay. Gotcha. So, anyways. Wait, so were they, did oh, the no, ages they were wig just them like, out? Or? They're like, what will I be like then? And <laughs> I, I don't know. Hopefully, great. <laughs> Hopefully, great. Exactly. Uh, so. That's hilarious. Well, congrats to you and so many others, Braves fans and um yeah, the losses make the victory sweeter. So that's awesome. And I don't understand what those numbers mean, but I'm trusting you that it's good. I feel like our audience does, and we're here to serve them. So. Yes. Okay, well, meanwhile, in other hard news, while the Braves were winning the World Series on Tuesday, there was an election day, and election night happened on Tuesday. And probably the the race that uh, most everyone was paying attention to, it, it's not a typical election night where there's you know, just races all across the country uh, at all levels. These were more sporadic, but there were some significant takeaways. And the race that most everyone was paying attention to was Virginia. So this next story comes from the Dispatch News Outlet, and they titled it Yunkin Turns Virginia Red. Glenn Yunkin is the Republican nominee who, who won, and he won over Terry McAuliffe, who was the Democratic nominee. And so from their story, While McAuliffe sought to nationalize the race by invoking former President Donald Trump at every opportunity and campaigning alongside high-profile Democrats like President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and former President Barack Obama, Youngkin zeroed in on kitchen table issues like K-12 education, taxes, and public safety. Youngkin ran on a platform of eliminating Virginia's grocery tax, suspending a recent tax hike, and doubling the standard deduction on state income taxes. 
He supports qualified immunity for police officers and has said he wants to fire Virginia's parole board to keep violent criminals behind bars. He pledged to keep schools open for in-person instruction five days a week, build at least 20 charter schools to increase choice for parents, and ban the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 education. The last point in particular became a defining feature of the campaign after McAuliffe said in a debate that he didn't think parents should, quote, be telling schools what they should teach. Well, whether or not his interpretation of loco parentis was correct, the gaffe cost McAuliffe dearly as Yunkin plastered it on airwaves and crafted a message aimed specifically at parents in the race's closing weeks. And ultimately, I you know, this is a pretty good summary of what all took place. It kind of proves the old political axiom to be true once again. When you are fighting the battles from the last election, you are likely losing. And that's essentially what McAuliffe was doing. I mean, everything that he ran uh, was essentially against former President Donald Trump. And in doing so, he didn't leave much margin to engage some of these local issues. And I got to tell you, that's important in a race that isn't about federal issues. It's actually about local issues. Gubernatorial races are often decided by just very localized matters. And it seems like Governor McAuliffe, former Governor McAuliffe, just didn't engage on that front. And he ended up losing. So in your political experience, uh, which many uh, listeners do not know that you ran the Tennessee Republican Party, which that just sounds like a really big job, what would you have advised that McAuliffe would have focused on these local issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I in the vast majority of races that I was a part of, even even federal races, we ended up spending a hefty amount of time engaging with voters in local issues. I mean, that was one of the things that I really concentrated on uh, in both the 2014 and 2016 cycle was, was trying to figure out what voters were concerned about in their local neighborhoods. And so whether that was on county races, uh, state legislative races, or congressional races, really wanted voters to understand that our candidate was being responsive to a concern in their backyard, or at least was willing to listen. And that, a lot of time, is what voters want. They want elected officials or or folks that are seeking to represent them to just listen. And that's, I mean, that is, again, it wasn't on the ground in Virginia, but that's what it came across as, is that the McAuliffe campaign was just not as responsive to some concerns that the Yunkin team was. And... um you know, there's there's a lot of talk out there. We should be clear. There's a lot of chatter out there, particularly on that last part that was in this section about CRT being taught in schools. And and folks think that the Yunkin campaign just kind of manufactured that. Uh, well, m- maybe, but I got to tell you, I mean, gosh, just in virtually any district across the country right now, parents are, because of the experience with COVID, with kids doing school remotely and in many cases at home, parents, I think, are just – they have a heightened sense of what is going on in the classroom, uh, whether their kids are getting in-person instruction, and and how do we best do that and, and in some cases most quickly get back to that. And so parents were already kind of primed for that. And education – again, we're talking a gubernatorial race. Education is traditionally a top three issue in any election year for governor. And so uh, my sense is, is honestly, the Yunkin campaign just kind of read that right. And ultimately, they prevailed. 
So speaking of prevailing, what other races were noteworthy from election night? Sure. So glad you asked. Uh, the other most uh, kind of highest profile race that the folks are paying attention to uh, was, and even that was, it was pretty quiet, uh, was the gubernatorial race in New Jersey. So there, Governor Phil Murphy did prevail, although it was a much closer race than folks anticipated. So this comes from CNN. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has become the first Democratic governor in more than four decades to win re-election in the Garden State, CNN projected Wednesday, narrowly surviving a closer-than-expected race that dragged well past Election Day. Murphy's victory over Republican nominee Jack Citarelli, albeit slim, defied the state's trend of voting in the party out of the White House in its off-year gubernatorial contests. So traditionally... New Jersey just kind of goes back and forth in these elections, but most folks expected Governor Murphy to kind of coast a re-election, and that was not the case. And so it it showed the uh, relative strength right now of the Republican brand in in places other than Virginia, and also the relative weakness of the Democratic brand. This story from the Wall Street Journal that we'll talk about next kind of provided some broader lessons from election night beyond those two states, and so this. Uh, reporting says this, in Minneapolis, the site of both the killing of George Floyd at police hands and a resulting wave of social unrest, voters turned down a proposal to replace the city's police department with a new Department of Public Safety, an initiative that would have ended a requirement that the city have a police department with a minimum number of officers. In Buffalo, four-term Mayor Byron Brown appeared to be winning in an improbable comeback write-in campaign against Democratic Socialist India Walton, who beat him in the Democratic primary and who earlier made waves with strident anti-police rhetoric. In Seattle, candidates for mayor and city attorney were leading over candidates who wanted to cut police funding, and progressives did pick up one notable win when liberal Michelle Wu won the race to become Boston's new mayor. The reporter went on to write, for Democrats, a model may have emerged as they struggle to deal with these cultural currents. Eric Adams, as expected, easily won the election to be New York City's next mayor. The key for Mr. Adams, a former city police officer, was winning the earlier Democratic mayoral primary by running as someone who could combine calls for racial justice with support for the city's police force. In doing so, he has staked out a center-left position that other Democrats will surely seek to emulate. So, uh, look, traditionally, we're in the first uh, portion of a new president's term. That often is not a great environment for the party in power. So, you know, it could historically be read like, oh, but this is kind of true to form. At the same time, some of these losses were pretty notable. So if you are a uh, Democratic political operative out there, Democratic analyst, there are worrying signs of concern for next year's uh, midterms in, in 2022. That's the main takeaway. Have there been times that stand out to you when the party in presidential office has actually helped their party for gubernatorial yeah. races, et cetera? I mean, the the midterms uh, for me that definitely fit that uh, because I lived in and was active in them were the midterms in 2002, George W. Bush's first midterms as president. Uh, and he gained seats uh, in Congress. And that was, you know, folks have to remember, that was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, patriotism was still very much a strong undercurrent in nearly every election around the country. Uh, so that is one that is pretty notable. But traditionally, this is tough sledding for the party in power. And these results from Tuesday, 
show that that uh, the Democratic Party has some work ahead of it uh, as they prepare for next year's elections. Golly, I miss George W. I do too. Oh, El Jefe is what his grandkids yeah. call him. <laughs> or Jefe, just Jefe. I think it's just Jefe. Yeah, yeah. just Jefe. Yeah. Oh, man. The boss man. The boss just man. Just got to love him. Okay, this next piece is, honestly, it's just kind of crazy. Uh, but it, I think it bears mentioning. It fits with the times that we're living in. <laughs> it, it definitely does. So this comes to us from the Dallas Morning News, a great newspaper out of Dallas, Texas. QAnon believers gathered in Dallas for the resurrection of John F. Kennedy Jr. Yes, that is a true sentence. QAnon believers gathered in Dallas this week for the resurrection of John F. Kennedy Jr. So from the story, scores of QAnon believers gathered Tuesday afternoon in downtown Dallas in the hopes that John F. Kennedy Jr. would appear, heralding the reinstatement of Donald Trump as president. The supporters first gathered Monday night in downtown Dallas, and at about 1 p.m. Tuesday, there were several hundred people near Dealey Plaza, where President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Kennedy's son died in a plane crash in 1999 at age 38, but some supporters of the QAnon conspiracy theory believe that he has spent the last 22 years in hiding, and they think that John F. Kennedy Jr. will reappear at the plaza before midnight on Tuesday. Uh, obviously, we're reading this from the future. He did not, in fact, reappear. Continuing with the story, one post from a widely followed QAnon social media account said that after Trump was reinstated as president, he would step down and JFK Jr. would become president. Then former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn would be appointed as his vice president and Trump would ultimately become, quote, king of kings, according to a report in Newsweek. So this is, I think, as believers, very strange because we know there is only one king of kings and certainly no one who is earthly will ever hold that title. But it just shows this weird conflation of, uh, you know, I was talking with a, a good friend this week, uh, this weird conflation that is kind of under this umbrella of QAnon with this idealized nostalgia for the John F. Kennedy presidency. There are a number of folks out there that that see that, that Camelot timeframe as like the apex of American political culture. Obviously, folks who have doubts about the 2020 election and this sort of, you know, biblical language, like all mixed in. And I would hope that as we read through that, us as Christ followers, we would hear this and say, okay, th this is a little concerning. This is not anything that was foretold in scripture and, and certainly biblical language, especially a title that belongs to Jesus and him alone, uh, is not going to be utilized for former presidents, for the children of, of former, I, it's just very odd. It's odd. And it's really sad that people can be deluded and latch on to such things, especially those who claim to be Christians and I would assume spend some time in their Bible, in the Word. It's just, yeah, it's beyond me. But um, what confuses me here is why would Trump enthusiasts want JFK Jr. I don't know. to become president because he, they were Democrats, the Kennedys. So what, I don't understand that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, it, 
people can certainly look back at different presidencies and and find things that are uh, noteworthy and and um, laudable. But look, I, I mean, at the John F. Kennedy presidency, there were certainly aspects of it, you know, uh, that you know him him vision casting for us to go to the moon. That that that's just something that immediately comes back to mind. Uh, the push uh, for the civil rights amendments, uh, certainly laudable. There was also a, a lot about the administration and President Kennedy's personal life, you know, without getting into too much detail. That was not something that needs to be affirmed or emulated. And so it's odd to me to have this kind of weird nostalgia for his presidency. I, I honestly, I don't know much about JFK Jr. I, I hate that he died in the plane crash. I mean, we've, we've talked about it before on here, the Kennedy curse, you know, that the, that family just just seems to to deal with so much tragedy. Uh, but I, I still don't know why he is lionized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't understand why the family would somehow be the way that Donald Trump will. Look, if if President Trump is going to come back to the White House, it's going to be because he actually wins the next election for president. And it's not even clear yet whether he's actually going to run. There's a number of people out there that certainly would like him to, and that's fine. But he's not going to be re-enthroned <laughs> because it's not a monarchy uh, at the White House. I mean, y'all, we, we've if we have friends like this, let's, let's just encourage them to, like, this is this is not the way. And so, yeah, it's just very odd. And obviously, the Dallas Morning News, there was enough people there that it, it made sense for them to report on it. And uh, I thought it was interesting for us to, to talk about it a little bit today. Right. Well, and it just reveals a hope in something other than the true king of kings. You right. know, when you're, when our hopes, uh, our desperate hope is placed in anything other than Christ, it can turn crazy and wacky yeah. real fast as we desperately cling to the fulfillment of that. And just one other note, you mentioned JFK's personal life not to be lauded. That makes sense to me, though, how there's the overlooking of that because of mm. Trump's personal life mm. not being one to yeah. to write home about in a good sense. So, yeah, uh, yeah really sad, really well, crazy. And, and it's actually that sad part. Like, we should, as this may sound just a little off uh, for a lot of us, we should acknowledge this. If you bull it all down, a lot of these people, they're looking for community. They they are searching for, I mean, the the report that we'll, we'll highlight in the show notes, it, it talks about how a number of these people drove from hundreds of miles away to come to this gathering. And to me, like, that actually pricked my heart to say, you know, these people are looking for community. And we should recognize that coming out of this COVID season, it has been hard on so many people. Mm-hmm. Um you know, churches not meeting and community centers not uh, hosting people and and social clubs uh, not not meeting, social organizations not meeting. Like, people are looking for community right now. And my heart was saddened by that, but then I also realized, my goodness, what an opportunity for churches. What an opportunity for churches to, to re-engage people that maybe have just kind of stayed behind a little bit. And a lot of, a lot of times, it seems like these people want to be engaged again. And, um, yeah, so that was some of my additional mm-hmm. takeaways from this. That's a good point. Okay, and moving on to our final story, this takes us overseas, and it is a troubling state of emergency in Ethiopia. Uh, this comes to us from the New York Times. Ethiopia declared a state of emergency on Tuesday and called on its citizens to pick up arms and prepare to defend the capital as rebel forces from the northern region of Tigray pressed south 
toward the city following the capture of two key towns. The Tigrayans, who have been fighting the government for the past year, have joined forces with another rebel group as they advance on the capital, Addis Adaba. Foreign officials monitoring the fighting said there were signs that several Ethiopian army units had collapsed or retreated. The state of emergency reflected the rapidly changing tide in a metastasizing war that threatens to tear apart Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country. And I'm, I'm sure that several members of our audience, they, they probably have sent missionaries over to Ethiopia, um, a number of, of connections with Ethiopia. This, you know, if, if that country falls, it certainly could have wider implications uh, for folks across the region. It is a situation we all need to be aware of and concerned about. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that, Brent. And it reminded me that we have an explainer on our site, which we'll link to in the show notes, about this civil war and understanding it. And we hope to get an update there uh, based on what we've seen lately. And again, we've said it before about other countries, but I just cannot... Imagine living in such a state, um, and meaning a state of being, like just being in the midst of just such turmoil and fearing for my life, fearing for my children's lives, and fighting constantly and corruption, and we need to be praying. I have a, a, a compassion child there in Ethiopia, so I don't think in this particular region, but so I get some updates, but it just Yeah, it breaks my heart, and I pray that it would break my heart the way that it breaks the Lord's heart and that it would move me to prayer. Yeah, and I mean, this is all the more concerning for that region because right next door, I think over the weekend, uh, Sudan, uh, a coup overtook Sudan. And and so, y'all, we know that there there will always be uh, war uh, and and rumors of war. Uh, You know, this is just, this region, I should say, always seems to be in, in some sort of of turmoil, and, and but we should not uh, that we shouldn't let that just kind of wash over us. Like, oh well, it's just always going to be this way, because there are people who are made very vulnerable by these sorts of situations. All right, so we are finishing with a number of heavier stories, but uh, that is your look at this week in culture, Lindsay. Thanks for that helpful rundown, Brent. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what are you talking about this week? So last week, I don't I don't think it made the recording, but last week we were just briefly talking off air about the, the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty. Uh, they are modern hymn writers, and they are so talented. They lead a conference each year here in Nashville called the Sing Conference, where worship pastors, worship ministers from across the country gather and talk about uh, how worship in our churches uh, can move whole communities and uh, and and just the whole experience of everything around worship in church. So anyways, A, what an amazing gift to be a hymn writer, first of all. And I'm just so thankful for them because, you know, it's not the poppy, feel-good, fluffy stuff that you get a lot on radio. It is like scriptural based. So I'm just so thankful that they mm-hmm. write with a purpose and a heaviness that is centered around scripture. But they came out with their newest album last Friday. And then as I was looking that up to listen to it, I had missed that they had released their kind of annual album coming out of their scene conference. And the first track 
on that album is by a group called City Alight, uh, which uh, they are a Christian group out of um, Australia. And um, their first song is Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, which, y'all, if you listen to this hymn, it just the words, like if you read the words to it and the way that they they have composed it, it sounds like it should be a hymn from the 1790s. It is so beautiful. It is majestic and wonderful. And it's just oozing with truth. And I love it. And I've put it in the show notes. And I am certainly not one to give advice to worship ministers out there. But gosh, if you can fit this into your Sunday arrangement, like, please do it. Because this is just, gosh, it's good. And um, I, again, I'll just end with where I started. I'm so thankful for people who have that gift because I clearly do not. Well, I really wish you would sing the song for us and mm. give us a little sample. Yeah, that is that is not that is not what the people come to the podcast for. Oh, man. I yeah. think it is what no. they would come here for. <laughs> yes, I've heard some of their music, and it is good. We've sang some at church, I believe. And I honestly haven't delved too much into their music and need to do that. I always forget about Spotify and different avenues in which I can do that, YouTube. But thank you for that recommendation. I, too, have a music recommendation. Oh, you do? Yes. Oh, and is it scripturally based? It's just, no, it's not, oh. actually. Oh. Uh, but hold on. I, before I get there, I'm going to tell you something a little bit more serious, and then I'll tell you about the music. So there's this doctor who I think I've mentioned on here before that I like to follow, a pediatrician out of Texas. And as many of you are wrestling with whether or not you will choose to vaccinate your children— she has an article titled Seven Reasons Why This Doctor's Mom's Kids Will Be First in Line for the COVID Vaccine. She's always very reasonable. And so I just figured whatever choice you make, this is just a little bit of information, uh, something to chew on as you're thinking through this coming from a doctor who has kids which within the next age range for vaccines. And so the music that I wanted to highlight is not uh, scriptural-based, but it does highlight God's gifts of creative talent and singing abilities, and it's Adele's new music. She has a new single out called Easy On Me, and it is just good. I just love—I love Adele's music, much of it, and this single is really good. Her CD, you can—or and it's not a CD anymore, is it? An album, you can download it and— uh, you can pre-order it and get this single. So I have pre-ordered the whole album. My husband is proud of me because as one who works in the music industry, he loves when you buy an artist's entire album because they make, songwriters especially do not make a lot of money off of streams and downloads when you just download one song. So I've just supported Adele and her other songwriters by buying her new album. So good. You can watch the video. I kind of think her... I don't even know if it's a strategy. Her marketing strategy is genius because she disappears for years and then comes back and then teases you with all this stuff. And there, are, she set some kind of records, I think, with this new single. And she has a remarkable transformation physically. She's hardly recognizable. So I, I, wouldn't, be able, I wouldn't be able to pick okay, her out of a so lineup. In another life, I would not be a hymn writer, although I am so thankful for them. I would just be an incredible singer. Like the best of the best, the you singerist would, of singers. You would be the, you'd be the Adele of the ERLC. 
Of the world. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm shooting for the stars. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> shoot, but, uh, shoot for the moon, Lindsay, yeah, because if you yeah, miss, you still I'm land amongst the, the stars. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. But, in, but I wouldn't miss if I had it my way. So, <laughs> so props to Adele and the talent that the Lord has given her. I, I really know nothing about Adele. I can't even name a song. Well, I think she sang on the James Bond soundtrack at some she point. She did, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. oh well, you need to listen to some of her songs. I don't like all of them, but the ones that she does well that I really like. You really like them? Yeah, just yeah. good music. So right. anyway, such talent. Well, but. she's talented, and uh, I, I, I'm thankful that her talent resonates with listeners like you. That's You're, right. The Adele is is your version of the Atlanta Braves. I don't know. It's like apples to oranges. I, you I don't you think resonate so. with Adele, and I resonate with the Atlanta Braves. The Braves, but it's not even the same yeah, category. I mean, well, so I know, but it I mean, based on what I said earlier, the Braves have also disappeared for many years at a time. Yeah, <laughs> it was all a part of their marketing strategy, actually. So to get exactly. little boys in seventh grade to buy Braves jackets that they will wear for years on end. The bravest brave of all. The bravest That's, Braves fan of all. Yeah, well, and I think that's a great place to end. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, which we sure hope you do, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating, five stars only, please, and review. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology. If you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And as always, we'll be back next week with more content.